Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, welcome to Conspiracy Normal, everybody. Uh, we are back after a little bit of a break. I have Timothy Renner to thank for this uh, guest that uh, we have on tonight. I heard this gentleman talk about something on Strange Familiars that really intrigued me, and it was this thing called the Shepton Mining Disaster. And this was something that happened in Pennsylvania in 1963, and something that I had never, ever heard of um, until then, and looked into it after that and have had the pleasure to read about it once again in the current book by this author maxim furick who we have on right now um coal region hoodoo and uh we're happy to have him on conspiranormal maxim welcome to the show yeah thanks adam and uh Sirfield. glad to be here and uh oh. yeah so for the folks out there hello uh i'm maxim furick and my book is coal region hoodoo glad to be on the yeah. podcast yeah, so we're going to talk about your book, talk about Coal Region Voodoo, and we're going to talk about uh, the Shepton Mining Disaster, which is a part of that book. And I understand that there is a whole book that's just about the Shepton Mining Disaster. Yeah, that was how I got into this paranormal thing, you know, uh, how, how I stumbled into it. But um, yeah, my uh, previous book is called Shepton, uh, The Myth, Miracle, and Music. And it talks about the 1963 Shepton Mining Disaster that just has all kinds of elements of the paranormal mm -hmm. and uh, so that was uh 2015 uh, that that came out okay yeah and we're going to talk about this that here in a second but before we do that i want to talk about the title uh that you chose for this current book uh coal region hoodoo what why did you choose that title particularly well first of all i wanted to do something um you know that uh promoted the paranormal aspects of the coal region and also, you know, Pennsylvania. And I wanted to do with for Pennsylvania what Stephen King's been doing for, for Maine, uh, what uh, some of the other authors are doing for New Orleans. And Pennsylvania has a history of paranormal events 
Uh, probably the most written about would be down in Lancaster with the hex signs and white witches and all that. But, you know, I felt that, boy, there's so much more out there. I'm just amazed that there aren't more paranormal researchers and authors that are writing about what, what happened back home. So anyway, um, after the Shepton mythology came out and after I seemed to have, it seemed it resonated, I seemed to have gotten an, an audience. I was invited to conferences and podcasts. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just follow this up, up a little bit further. So Coal Region Hoodoo, Hoodoo refers to uh, something that could be both a blessing or a curse. And when we take a look at the miners, the trap miners in Shepton, you know, I, I asked myself, why is it that two of the miners were rescued and they got the blessing, whereas the third miner got the curse? I mean, we don't even know what happened to him. You know, some people think he was cannibalized, but we don't know. So that was what what I uh, the term what hoodoo, uh, you know, uh, uh, represents to me. Okay. And and the Shepting mining disaster is a pretty significant, still a pretty significant part of this book. Um, so there's a lot still that's about it. If people want to find out about it, and uh, what are kind of the basics of the Shepton mining disaster? And also, too, people might be asking, you know, how's the Shepton mining disaster? How's a mining disaster figure in with the paranormal? Yeah, but there are some very paranormal aspects to this. Yeah. Well, first of all, how did I get there? You know, I was writing a book on uh, uh, the highest charting song uh, that we had in northeastern Pennsylvania was in 1971. That was a song called Timothy. It was recorded by a group called The Boys. And Rupert Holmes, the Pina Colada man, was an engineer for Scepter Records. He wanted to write a song that would get The Boys some notoriety and get them another record deal. So that was the plan. So he wrote the song about cannibalism in a mine. And all of a sudden, people started to put two and two together and say, wait a second, Timothy, the song seems to be a lot like uh, the Shepton mine disaster. Because in Shepton, there were three men that were uh, trapped for two weeks. They were trapped 330 feet underground. And after they were finally rescued, they only rescued two of them. And they wanted to know what happened to the third miner. And some people believe that there was cannibalism involved, and that just reared its ugly head and took off. And to this day, there's people that still believe that, but it's unfounded, it's unsubstantiated, you know, it's, it's grotesque, but that uh, urban legend, if you will, uh, persists to this day. Mm -hmm. So I'm researching Shepton. And all I wanted to do was write this rock mythology connecting the song with Shepton. But as I'm researching Shepton, I found out that it had uh, very significant uh, paranormal elements. It had elements of out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and afterlife experiences. And what was really kind of crazy about that was that all of these things, I mean, you could say, okay, that they are paranormal and they, uh, they fall into the, the realm of the supernatural. But with the Shepton narrative, all of these things were vetted or validated by psychologists, psychiatrists, by Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, one of the leading authorities on near-death experiences, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote the transformative book on death and dying. And she was down there in Virginia, and she believed that Shepton represented a classic example of life after death. 
So who were these two men that were trapped down there in the mine? Well, you said there were three men, one, two got out. One was never, one was never recovered, which kind of sparked some of the rumors. Yeah, sure but who were the two men that were, uh, that were trapped down there and how long were they trapped down there? First they were trapped. They were trapped down there for, for two weeks. Uh, what happened was it was on two a weeks. Tuesday in August. It was August of, uh, of, uh, 63. And, yeah. uh, the three guys were down at the bottom of the, the hole, the pit, 330 feet down, and they sent down the bucket, the bucket buggy. They filled it up with coal, sent it to the top. There was a guy named George Walker. He was the uh, foreman up there. So he tipped uh, the car. He was, I guess, the tipper foreman, uh, tipped it and sent it back down. On the way down, that's when the, uh, the cave-in happened. And so there were thousands, maybe millions of tons of coal and rock and timber that came down, you know, close to the miners. So they uh, uh, dove into these little monkey shafts. And uh, uh, Davy Fallon, who was 58, and Hank Throne, who was 28, uh, were the ones who were finally extricated after two weeks. So they were the only ones. They never found the body of Louis Bova. Uh, they never found bones. They never found bloody clothing or anything. They never found any, uh, any uh, evidence of anything uh, you know, strange happening down there. So, and they went down and they checked, but uh, there, there was no evidence. So, you know, so again, the rumors persisted and, and linger and continue. Even Louis Bova's son, Johnny, believes that the possibility that they ate his father exists. And he's been interviewed countless times and he's, he's sticking to a story. Yeah, but more than likely, probably he just was crushed probably when, when the, when the collapse happened, that seems to be the more than likely explanation. Well, I, here's what, what I think. I mean, and whenever I do my programs, there's always people that come up to me and they give me their idea, their uh, theory of what happened to Louis Bova. And that's, you know, there's plenty of them. But I think what happened, I think you're right, uh, Adam. I think that what happened was a mountain of coal and rock separated felon and throne from Bova. Uh, they yeah. claimed that they spoke with him. Uh, after the cave-in, and he said that he, his leg was broken, and they spoke with him for a while, and then his voice faded, and eventually they, they had, didn't have any contact. So that's what I think happened. You know, I don't think that there was ever any cannibalism. And I'll tell you what, another thing, too. I mean, being traumatized down there in a pit where, there, where, where there's no light, total darkness, right. crawling, on your, call, crawling on your hands and knees like a dog, sucking in coal dust and dirt, and water, you know, I mean, horrible, you know, sulfur water trickling down, all this stuff, with and having no hope of uh, of rescue, which has had to be the the worst part of this ordeal. But um, hmm. I don't think those guys in that traumatized uh, condition were hungry. I don't think they were hungry. I think food was the last thing that they were thinking about, and I think they were just adrenalized. You know, they were just going on, just going on emotion and. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it had to be horrific to be down there. From the surface, were they digging a hole where they could lower kind of like supplies down to them? Because they kind of knew where they were. Is is that uh, that's how I understood it? Is that true? Well, what happened was the uh, the the shaft uh, uh, opening where they went went up and down. That was yeah. totally blocked, so they couldn't do that. They felt that it would take something like three months maybe to uh, remove all the, all the uh, debris. Wow. 
So wow. that was just too long. So they thought somebody thought that if they are alive, maybe they jumped into one of these monkey shafts and maybe they'll be there. So the, 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 the plan was to take these drills and just drill like I think it was a three inch or six inch hole down there to try to find them and then if they, they could find them then they would go and make that hole bigger what happened was they had a drill device <coughs> and uh they knew exactly where they wanted to go and start drilling and the uh rig broke down before they got to that place so somebody said what the hell let's just drill anyway so they drilled anyway and they found them so you know that's part mm. of the you know, you know that's part of the what well, i mean call that what you will you know yeah a lot of guests are you know, no, yeah, I think it was part of that whole Shepton mythology, you know, just a lot of weirdness. Now, what, um, so there's an interesting, so there's some interesting things about it. I mean, you have, um, I think it was Felon, I think that he was the older man, and then Throne, he was the younger one. And uh, Felon was, he was Roman Catholic, but Throne was not. Yeah, pretty but much agnostic, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, there were some interesting things that, I mean, they're down there in this pit, and like you said, I mean, it, it's it's total darkness. So you've got like a lot of the sensory deprivation going on. Right. Um, they begin to see things down right. there, mm-hmm. and they and 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 they both report seeing things. So, what kind of things were they seeing? Well, first of all, you're right. They both reported seeing the same thing. They 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 did that during separate interviews. And, uh, you know, they were polygraphed and tape recorded by psychiatrists and uh, psychologists. Uh, So a lot of people, uh, you know, talk to them and uh, interview them. But they saw uh, the apparition of Pope John the 23rd. And Pope John the 23rd was stayed with them for two weeks. He was in the mine. The interesting thing about Pope John the 23rd was that he had died in June of 63. Shepton took place in August of 63. And when Pope John the 23rd was canonized in 2014, uh, numerous Vatican scholars and academics came forward and said that, yes, Shepton is one of the miracles that uh, Pope John the 23rd performed. So, um, uh, again, it was a, uh, 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 it seemed to be a case of uh, uh, life after death. All three of these miracles of Pope John the 23rd happened after he had died. And a uh, Roman Catholic nun that I talked about said that the reason for that is he died and went to heaven and got his power, his authority, and then came down and worked the miracle. So, you know, that's the story. That's the Roman Catholic uh, mythology. But um, the fact that, you know, the Vatican and Vatican scholars got behind this, I mean, that's pretty amazing, too. So it wasn't just a story. It wasn't just a story of two miners who saw something. But it was other people that said, yes, this is valid. This, you know, this is this sacrosanct. This is a this is a miracle. And I mean, call it what you will. They felt that the vision of Pope John the 23rd saved their lives. He was just there in the background, just sort of giving them the feeling that they would be uh, rescued, that they, you know, that they should be calm, uh, that they were going to be rescued. And that was his MO, his modus operandi in the other miracles that he uh, performed, that he would just be in the back of the room, you know, with his arms folded, just, you know, at peace. So, And this was seen by both men. This was seen yeah. by the, by the, the, by felon who was a Roman Catholic and, and, and throne who yeah. was not. 
Yeah, yeah seen by both men. Yeah. yeah, which is a great story. I mean, what a classic story. You know, I mean, you know, somebody should do a, a documentary about this. But um, what happened was they uh, finally got rescued, and they had helicopters there. So they took thrown over to the Hazelton General Hospital first, and then the second chopper. I think they had two choppers. Took um, Davy Fallon over. And when they went there, now remember, this is 63, and there was a picture of the Pope. You know, a lot of these people here in Hazleton were, were, were Roman Catholic. And there was a picture of Pope John XXIII and Throne, who was not schooled in Catholicism or any kind of religious thing. He goes, Davy, that's him. That's the guy we saw down there. There's the stranger. Look, it's him. So Throne knew that that guy was Pope John Third. you know. Mm-hmm. That was pretty, just a pretty amazing thing. So um, that was the one thing. The other thing, though, before they were pulled through that borehole, which had to be a horrific ordeal, uh, uh, before they went up, Felon told Throne this. He said, Davy, keep your damn mouth shut. Don't tell them what we saw down here because they're going to think we're crazy. And so they sent him up the borehole, and as soon as uh, – Throne got there, and again, they had paparazzi back in 1963, just like they do today. And they started to interrogate him and say, you know, well, how was it down there? What did you see? And all this, all on and on and on. And Throne started to talk about seeing apparitions and golden stairwells and, you know, all kinds of weird stuff, you know, humanoids. So he spoke of that paranormal, the paranormal things that they saw when uh, Fallon said, I don't want you to do that because they're going to think there's something wrong with us. And, you know, so again, Fallon wasn't looking for any kind of notoriety. He didn't want to talk about this. And it was thrown that pretty much, uh, you know, ruined the game plan. They don't try for any publicity or there's no, he doesn't want to talk about it. I mean, he ends up becoming a bus driver. Yeah. It almost feels like it gets lost because this is one of those events that until I heard your interview with, with Tim, I never had heard of. And it seems very, yeah, you could say that this stuff might be hallucinations. I mean, you know, with the sensory deprivation aspect of it. But, I mean, that's some pretty fantastic, if it is, that's some pretty fantastic uh, hallucinations yeah. well, to see all the, the stuff that they saw. Because even if they see, like, whole cityscapes and these type of things down while they were down there and the, I, uh, people in, suit, I, in weird suits and all kinds of strange things. Yeah. Now... They had already passed when I was working on the books. I wasn't I didn't have the opportunity to go and interview him, but I knew yep. a guy from Hazelton, Pennsylvania. He was a businessman and he worked with Davy Fallon. He had business dealings with Davy Fallon. And he agreed to be interviewed by me as long as he could have his anonymity. So he would ask Davy questions like, What about the cannibalism? And Davy said, you know, no, that didn't happen. What about yep. the ancestors sitting on the stairwells? And they oh, he talked about saying seeing the ancestors, it was almost like a near-death experience type of thing, you know, like the tunnel of light, tunnel with the light, the beckoning figure. It was similar to that. Um, uh, so they saw things, and when they were interviewed separately, both talked about the same things. Um, the Skeptical Inquirer had a really big piece on the Shepton mythology. And I don't want to say it was a, a hit piece because they talked a lot about Shepton. They said that my book was the def- definitive book on the topic, had all kinds of, I mean, it was really long, uh, long-winded. long They had one little piece at the end 
where they claim that because of Occam's razor, you know, in a medieval means of figuring out if something is, you know, is proper and correct or whatever, they claim that if you use Occam's razor, which looks for the most simplest explanation in something complex, then it had to be hallucinations or something like this. And I argue the fact that with things of a paranormal or spiritual or supernatural uh, nature, you can't look for a, uh, a common denominator because it, it's outside the realm of science. It's something different. So I think that when the, the uh, skeptical inquirer did that piece, I just, I didn't, uh, you know, go along with, with their conclusion. Uh, again, though, they did give us uh, a lot of ink, you know, they, I mean, they wrote about it extensively and, uh, you know, and, and that was fine. So, um, but, you know, that's okay. When I wrote uh, the Shepton Mythology, what I did was I, they had an exclusive inter, um, contract with the Associated Press. For, so for one year, the Associated Press would follow them around and do interviews and get into seeing Pope John the 23rd and everything else. So that was pretty well documented. When I wrote the book, what I did was I told their story through their eyes and through their words. I believe that what, they, what happened was actually happened, uh, that it was not a hallucination, that it wasn't sensory deprivation, that they were able to go and pull through, you know, with their faith, with the symbiotic relationship between felon and throne, you know, with, with, uh, with hope, um, you know, so um, again, this is, you know, uh, if all, all else, you know, uh, you want to discount, uh, at least view Shepton as a tremendous story of human survival. I mean, under possible odds, you know, but, but again, I, it's, you know, I believe it has a uh, definite paranormal uh, slant to it. And again, validated by scientists like uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and uh, the military uh, psychologists that talked to him. So there were a lot of people that were involved in this interviewing felon and throne and getting the same narrative. You know, they saw the same thing. So, you know. Is this probably well more well-known in Catholic circles around the world, especially people devoted to saints and, and those kind of practices? That's a good question, you know, but um, I don't know. I think it's it's probably more popular uh, with uh, people that are into the uh, the paranormal because it falls into that thing. And then even when you take a look at Catholics, you know, I mean, Catholics are pretty much split. You know, the difference between Catholicism and maybe the Protestant uh, religions, you know, when you talk about communion, you know, Catholics believe that, you know, that you actually experience the body and blood of Christ. You know, Protestants, I believe, believe it's all symbolic. Now, given that, out of all the Roman Catholics in America, there's fewer and fewer Roman Catholics that actually believe that this is the true body and blood of Christ, and a lot of them are believing that this is symbolic. So that's point one. Another point, you know, you're finding an equal number of people that believe in God in this country as do believe in UFOs and the Space Brothers. So, you know, I mean, traditional religion as we once know it is no longer as we once knew it. Everything's changing. You know, I mean, you know, people, uh, you know, maybe more spiritual than religious, you know, but I mean, why not look at the Space Brothers, somebody who's benevolent, smarter than us, wiser than us, somebody who's going to save us from destroying the planet. And, uh, 
So, and, you know, not to be a fatalist, but, uh, you know, at some point, the uh, water on Earth evaporates and we start getting choked out. I mean, you know, more and more this planet becomes a pressure cooker and it's not going to be next year or the year after, but after another million or billions of years, you know, this Earth is going to die. It's a dying planet. So, you know, whether your political views on global warming and climate change, you know, whatever they are, I mean, it's it's getting dicier and dicier. And look and look at the weather. I mean, come on, you know, you know how's the weather in Nashville and Seattle? I mean, anything atypical? Well, it's pretty hot here. I don't know about <laughs> yes. over there. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, no matter you, no matter where you cut, you you come down on that debate. Um, you got to admit that things are getting a little, you it's, know, with the forest fires, climate and things. change, wherever. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I want to. Yeah. I want to address. I want to address a point that you make in the book, um, and this is something that uh, the third man factor. Oh yeah. Or the third man phenomenon. That this is yeah, something yeah. that is very similar to what these guys experience with the with with seeing the Pope right down there in the in the mine. Um, that this this is this is a this is a very common thing actually. So when I wrote the book, I said, okay, this seems to be a miracle. Everybody's calling it a miracle. You know, they saw Pope John the 23rd and he saved, saved their lives and he was canonized and all that. So that sort of fit. And then uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jason Bamforth from Philadelphia, he's a paranormal researcher and author. And he said, hey, did you ever hear of the third man factor, you know, John Giger? And I said, no. So I looked it up and here in cases like Shepton, where they have physical and psychological trauma, a lot of times there is an apparition that is manifested that seems to be there to give these people comfort and guidance. Uh, so what is that? I mean, what name could you put on it? And so in my, my chapter in Coleridge and Hoodoo, I talked about that. I thought maybe they could be guardian angels. They could be spirit guides. They could just be apparitions. We don't know. They could be Jung's collective unconsciousness, you know, a uh, psychological projection of something. But um, after seeing the third man factor, it sort of opened up that realm. And this is what we do in the, in the, in the paranormal universe, you know. So the possibility that it might be more than just a miracle that it might be something else than a miracle. I mean, that sort of opened up. So in Coleridge and Hoodoo, I wrote about that. And, uh, but you're correct. I mean, we've seen this or people have seen this in, uh, you know, when they were exploring, uh, you know, uh, Antarctica and during 9-11 and uh, uh, when Charles Lindbergh flew uh, across the Atlantic, I mean, he thought he saw somebody with him. So again, whatever that is, I mean, that, you know, uh, we don't know, but, you know, we, we try to put a name for it to it. You know, sort of like, I mean, I think all of us are a little bit like J. Allen Hynek, you know. He was able to come up with words like high strangeness to indicate a certain uh, level of significance. You know, like if you see a light in the sky, maybe that's like low strangeness. But if that light hovers over a car and kills the engine and people are seeing things, you know, that might be a, mm. it's uh, an example of high strangeness. And then right. Hynek, again, with his close encounters of the first, second, and third kind. Uh, so he helped us with that definition, and I think that with Giger's uh, third man factor, that's just something else. I mean, just give us vocabulary and terms, give us genres, give, give us categories 
to help make sense of all, all these things that are beyond the scope of science. So that's, I think, what we're all trying to do. That's certainly what I'm trying to do. You mentioned with the third man factor, like the Shackleton expedition, where they're walking through the on the snow on the on the ice pack. Yep. And the I think there were there were three of them in this case, and they they thought that there was a fourth person with them the entire time. Yeah. And then yeah, the uh, the newspaper from what was the 1920 maybe had the on the front page they had a drawing there. You know, were there three or maybe four? You know, so you had this apparition on the side. So it was kind of cool, you know. But um, I think we've always seen things like this. We've always heard about it. You know, it's nothing new. I mean, what's happening in 2023 was happening back in the 20s and 30s and probably before then. So, you know, we've always seen things and tried to figure out what they are. Uh, I'm sure that 100 years ago, there were people just like the three of us having a similar conversation about, things that they saw up in the sky you know let's talk about uh the smurl haunting this is oh, one yeah. that i've that yeah. i've looked into um as well and uh i understand that you got to interview ed and lorraine warren at one point yeah they were friends of mine <laughs> this was this was kind of oh, crazy. really yeah okay so you knew yeah. them a little better than just interviewing them okay yeah well we had a relationship i think we had a friendship but here, what happened was um there was a place in west pittston pennsylvania close to Wilkes-Barre, and uh, it was a house that uh, the Schmuel family believed was possessed, demonic possession. They heard grunting sounds, they smelled horrible things, uh, profanities would be etched on the mirrors. Uh, the, the Jack Schmuel, the, hu- the husband, claimed that he was raped by a female demon, a succubus. So what was interesting about the, all this is that the Catholic Church started to send in priests, they started to send in the local exorcist because they took this seriously. So the church didn't try to cover it up or ignore it. Um, Jack Curran was a local reporter, and he wrote a book called The Haunted, and Ed and Lorraine Warren were co-authors of this. So in uh, 1988, in 1988, they started the 15-city tour. They were in a place called Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. So I went out there. I wrote a letter to the uh, the theater owner, you know, asking permission to interview them. And so I uh, interviewed them. Took these really good pictures. They're in the book, but I mean, some really great pictures. And uh, hung out with them. And then I would contact them, you know, over the years asking them questions about demonic possession, about the Shmuro haunting, just about things like that. Lorraine had a pet rooster, so you could hear the pet rooster in the background, but they were very nice people. They were very accommodating. Uh, you know, they didn't have any kind of attitudes. And Ed and Lorraine Warren, for I'm sure your listeners know, they are responsible for the Conjuring franchise. You know, Conjuring, Conjuring 2, Annabelle, Annabelle 1 and 2, all this. Um, and uh, which is the second uh, most successful horror franchise going. I mean, seven motion pictures, $2 billion. That's two with a, with a B. So that was the Conjuring thing. Um, uh, they um, investigated the Shmuro haunting and uh, believed that uh, there was demonic possession uh, involved there. And uh, so the, the, that incident was a really big thing back home. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, like I said, there was a book written about it. There was a made for TV Fox, uh, 
motion picture made about it. And uh, so, you know, that did get some exposure. But, you know, in the scheme of things, there are so many places like Amityville and the Hinsdale House, you know, and I'm sure that you have your own uh, spook house in uh, Tennessee and in Washington State. So, you know, but ours was uh, kind of infamous because of the uh, connection with Ed and Lorraine Warren and, uh, you know, and even with the young girl, the Schmurl girl, who uh, seemed to come out of a Stephen King novel. Stephen King made a career out of talking about these young women that had psi power, uh, Firestarter and Carrie and all this. So, uh, you know, in, at one point the collie was levitated with the Schmerl house, was levitated and thrown across the, the room. And, uh, and some uh, researchers felt that maybe that wasn't uh, a demon doing that, maybe the young daughter was mm -hmm. doing that, the young Schmerl daughter, you know, with the, the psi power, the, you know, the angst, the uh, teenage, you know, frustrations and what, whatever, whatever goes into that. But, yeah, that's, 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 that's a pretty leading theory for poltergeist phenomenon that it's caused by um, a young person and most yeah. often a uh, young female. Yeah. Um, uh that you know i mean you know there's the um there's the famous case in 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 britain that i'm and enfield enfield yes thank you i knew it started with an e yeah. um yeah that um don't ask me how that I, I picked it out so <laughs> yeah well thank you thank you um you know um yeah, it's an interesting case. I mean, and uh, and and as I understand it, um, and I think you write a little bit about this in the book, that they send an exorcist in there. I think they got Bishop McKenna in there in the beginning. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe. And uh, what happened was nobody could really get the job done. Every yeah. a Roman Catholic diocese has a uh, per, a priest who's uh, schooled in uh, the uh, uh, ancient uh, rite of exorcism. Uh, so you know, that's pretty standard. But nobody could get the job done. I mean, the demonic activity con continued. So uh, Bishop James Timlin at called for help from New York State. And there was a, uh, I want to get the, because uh, there was something I want to read here, but it was Father uh, Alphonse Trebolt who uh, came down from upstate New York and uh... enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with BetMGM you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features live betting options and the best daily promotions in the business and with BetMGM at your fingertips every play and every game matters more than ever place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, this isn't, I'm trying to find something. And, uh, it took him four times to go and do the uh, his exorcism, but he finally was able to go and uh, get it done. So that was interesting. But prior to the Shmurohani, uh, uh Father Trebolt uh, was trying to uh, purge another property, and it was up in um, up in New York State. And he wasn't able to go and cleanse the house. And I have this in Co-Region Hoodoo, but he said, quote, some ground is just bad. No one knows why. So just leave as soon as you can and take only your things with you. Don't discuss your plans inside the house. This place is just a hole to hell. So there's some places that he felt were just pure evil and that he had no means, no mechanism of, you know, chasing that uh, evil away or of cleansing that evil. So, again, this is a guy that he taught, a course, uh, religion and parapsychology, you know, he was an academic and he was a uh, very active exorcist. And, uh, you know, but the one uh, place in New York uh, State, he wasn't able to go and uh, get the job done. Uh, with the Shmuro haunting, it took him four times. And then, you know, it was resolved. Uh, uh, again, uh, it was controversial. And a lot of people thought, oh, yeah, the Shmuros are making money off this. Well, you know, I don't know how much money, I don't know how much money other authors are making, but, you know, this isn't, this isn't the, the way to fame and fortune, I'll tell you. I mean, we write because of the love of, you know, the craft. But, um, but they took their hits, you know, and it's amazing when you come forward, just like in the paranormal, people that would come up, come forward and say, I saw something, I saw a UFO. And how many of those people are criticized and castigated for hallucinating 
or not knowing what they saw or for me being mentally imbalanced. I mean, how many people are reluctant to come forward and tell the world what they saw because of the potential criticism? So, you right, know, and ridicule, yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to see things. I mean, I think, but I think a lot of us uh, in, the, in the paranormal realm are more accepting, you know, because we don't know. I mean, maybe you do see things. I mean, I do these presentations and people come up to me and tell me about the orbs that they see, you know, or people speaking to them. I mean, okay, I mean, I don't know what it represents, you know, but I'm sure that, you know, you're experiencing something that's, that's valid. Well, we talked about these uh, horror franchises that came out of Ed and Lorraine Warren's uh, real life experiences, but you also talk about in the book how uh, a lot of the modern horror movie itself and its its form and it, the popularity of zombies came out of the coal region as well with the Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, last year we went, um, we did this West, I talked my wife into this Western Pennsylvania trek. So we went to Kecksburg for the Kecksburg UFO Festival. And there was a, the famous December 1965 uh, crash. And it was it was Pennsylvania's Roswell. You know, the something crashed in the dead of night. The military came, took it out, put tarps over it, trucked it out, told people to shut up, don't talk about it. You didn't see anything. But the real rub is this, as Shakespeare would say, the real rub is that whenever people like Stan Gordon or other ufologists would go and try to do the research using the Freedom of Information Act, either the information on uh, Kecksburg was redacted you know, scrubbed out so you can read it, or the pages were missing. So, some, yeah, who's zooming who? I mean, somebody's hiding something. And if it was a meteorite, if it was just one of our satellites, if it was a Russian satellite, if it was any of that stuff, why not just say it? You know, whatever that technology was in 1965, we have surpassed that by light years. So, so that was, so we went to the uh, Kecksburg uh, Festival, UFO Festival, and then we went up to Evans City, which is just north of Pittsburgh, and the mayor, uh, Dink Zinkhan, took me and my wife around. He offered to get remarry us at the uh, cemetery chapel, and uh, but that's where Night of the Living Dead was shot, and uh, it was 1968, black and white. And if you watch the first 10 minutes of that movie, I mean, like it's just awesome. I mean, they got it right. They're on a low uh, shoestring budget. But uh, for what they did with the uh, camera angles and the black and white MG, just the introduction is just a great uh, beginning to a horror movie. And uh, in my book, I claim that art imitates life. And I talk about three motion pictures that are Pennsylvania-centric. And I start off with Night of the Living Dead. I go to the blob and I talk about the Philadelphia Experiment. And uh, you guys probably know that 2023 is the 80-year anniversary of the Philadelphia Experiment for 1943. So I had a uh, involvement in, uh, in uh, the Philadelphia Experiment, but the other two books, I mean, were, were significant. Uh, you know, I, I start the book off with a chapter called Night of the Living Dead, and, uh, and, I, and I contend that it wasn't so much a zombie movie, I mean, ostensibly it was, but it was a motion picture that took a look at 1968, which was, which was a horrific year. 
and we had the Tet Offensive, where every province in South Vietnam was overrun. We had the Pueblo seized by the North Koreans. We had the uh, race riots, the Easter Sunday riots, where about 100 cities were torched. We had Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King assassinated. And then you had the Chicago Convention, where you had the protesters against the National Guard. So, and also Mayor Daley banned uh, street fighting men by the Stones. It was a banned record. You couldn't play it. So I, I contend that Night of the Living Dead was, just took a sociological look at the turmoil that was happening in 1968. And I tell people today, and I'll tell your listeners out there, anybody listening to that who feels that the post-pandemic, uh, the post-COVID uh, years were so bad with 2020, 2021, and you know, even today, you know, with COVID and the political divide, you know, if you think this was bad, you should take a time machine back to 1968 and go through that. I mean, it was a bad year. It was a horrible year. But the good news is that the nation endured. I mean, it didn't tear us apart and fracture us. But 68 was uh, a nasty, nasty year on so many levels. Uh, but we made it through that. So we made it to 2023. So you know, but uh, Night of the Living Dead is just a classic and, uh, you know, pretty much jump started all of the uh, zombie movies and Walking Dead and all that. So, you know, so it's came from the hills of Pennsylvania. Yeah, you definitely write about it, you know, being reflective of the time period that it was that it was made. There was some if... social commentary in the movie, too, you know. Yeah. Well, they used a, a black guy as uh, as the lead. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. who does that in 68? Right. You know? Yeah, and then they had it the was blonde, a little different for the time, right? Black guy and a, a blonde actress, so he had that. So, yeah, just a whole lot of things. But uh, why not? Why not just throw it out there and see how it works? You know, so uh, George Romero was uh, experimenting, I guess, and, uh, you know, innovative, you know, interesting guy. Yeah, and you, t- you just talked about the Kecksburg UFO and wanted to talk a little bit about that. Um, what's your thoughts on the Kecksburg UFO? Do you have any theories as to what it could have been? Yeah, uh, it could have been one of ours that went down, and it could have been a uh, uh, experimental uh, satellite because uh, it seemed to be controlled. When it came down, it didn't act like a meteorite, and it seemed to be controlled. And it went over Canada and numerous states, so a whole lot of people saw it. But it seemed to be guided, and it was maneuvering, and then it finally crashed outside of Kecksburg. And uh, so what it was. You know, uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, could, be, could have been one of many things, including a UFO. But the other thing, the thing that intrigues me more than anything else is why would there be a cover-up? Why would you not uh, allow information about that uh, in uh, 2000 and, uh, you know, 23? Uh, you know, I, I can't imagine that this information, it's almost like Roswell, you know, and uh, Project Mogul, and Skyhook and all that, uh, you know, they st- the government is still withholding information with that. And as you know, there's a lot of disinformation. I mean, they're getting a lot of crazy stuff out there. So they're really blurring the lines. Now, I don't think that happened in Kecksburg, but it certainly happened in Roswell and, you know, a lot of other places. So there's some government entities and who knows? I mean, there's probably entities other than the CIA and FBI that we don't even know about that uh, are... Uh, putting information out there or feeding that to uh, uh, UFO, UFO researchers. So uh, 
I don't know. It's it's a bit of a mess. It's a convoluted mess out there, and it's hard to go and find out, you know, uh, what the truth is and what's the, what the uh, disinformation is. But I think whoever it is, you know, uh, uh, you know, divide and conquer, you know, keep the masses confused. And, you know, in our realm, I think that's that's what they're trying to do with us. So I don't know. I don't know what came down in December of 65, but it was something and it wasn't a meteor. And I think it was controlled. So I don't know. I've heard several different things. I mean, I've, you know, one of the things, you know, of course, everybody, a lot of people love the theory that it was that Nazi bell thing. Okay. Yeah. You do mention that in the book. Cause it's got that, you know, it's, it, it's got that acorn type yeah. of shape and it's, it was shaped very similar. It's similar to what, you know, I don't even know where the whole Nazi bell thing even came from. Um, but the, um, so a lot of people were written about that. I've heard that it was uh, it was a broken arrow, in other words, like a nuclear weapon that um, was that got lost and uh, didn't explode, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which that has that actually I don't know if that could that that's happened a few times. I don't, I don't know why they would cover that up unless it was something really top secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one interesting one uh, that it was that you write about in the book was it was like Soviet space program. Right. Yeah. And uh, some people thought it was that. Again, if it was, you know, why not fess up? I mean, what's what's the problem? Yeah. I mean, it's ours. It's yeah. ours. I mean, you know, we're not giving it back. So, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I don't know. It, it's just weird. But the other thing, too, is, um, you know, it's just like UFOs and Bigfoot, you know, uh, this this physical structure this physical reality you know um if it was that nazi bell was maybe there was time travel involved maybe there was another dimension or parallel universe so you know researchers are talking more about that and this is driven by albert einstein his uh his wormhole theory that you know there's black holes there's uh conduits from one uh, at uh, area of the space-time continuum to another. So, you know, scientists, uh, astronomers are trying to figure out how uh, civilizations could get from their planet to here when it would take us like 26, 36 years to get there. I mean, or just it's a long, long way. It's just impossible to get there. But with Einstein's wormhole theory, then you could just bridge that gap in seconds. So, again, this seems to be the predominant theory with uh with ufos for some people and also bigfoot that maybe they're shape-shifting between dimensions between parallel worlds again we don't know all we have are the theories so and i think you've met stan gordon correct like i did you met yeah. him yeah. yeah like he's he's in that um i guess the western part of the state yeah and and what's I, that that famous case the ridge that it's a really high yeah. like with Bigfoot encounter, but it's really strange, really yeah. odd. Yeah. I talk about Chestnut Ridge in, in Ridge. Hoodoo. Yeah. So Chestnut Ridge is this area, about a hundred mile area stretch from uh, southeast of Pittsburgh, goes down to West Virginia. It takes in about four or five counties, but this is where we see the majority of Bigfoot sightings and also Bigfoot and UFO sightings together. And when I first heard this, I thought, this is, this is, you know, this is crazy. I mean, I didn't believe it at all. But the more I read about it and saw this is pretty prevalent, 
And I sort of think it indicates that maybe Bigfoot is more than just a physical reality. Maybe there's this paranormal aspect as well that, you know, the UFO sightings bring bring to, to it. So I don't know. But I mean, things just got, again, you know, to make my point, things just got more convoluted and, and confused, you know, with all that. But yeah. Stan, Gordon, Stan Gordon's the one that documents all this stuff. Uh, whenever the, the people call out, in Western Pennsylvania, called the state police with the UFO or Bigfoot sightings. They say, "Call Stan." You know, so they call Stan Gordon, and they uh, and he writes it down. So, well, I know you're familiar with Tim Renner's, you know, work. I know you're familiar with his with his book, uh, "Where the Footprints End," and yep. Yep. Um, his book, along with Joshua Cutchin. I mean, I think they've done pretty much the definitive examination of just how weird the Bigfoot phenomenon can be. And he talks about the wild men. I mean, people like right. in the 17, 1800s would see these right. wild men, these primitive guys. And, uh, you know, just maybe they were Bigfoot that they were saying. You know, maybe they were just misidentifying them, you know. But uh, Tim did an awesome job. He got a, a book called Bigfoot in Pennsylvania. Uh, Tim and I were on the same stage a couple of weeks ago. We were in uh, yeah. York County, Pennsylvania. And that was just great to hang out with him and, uh, you know, and uh, – you know, so I gave my talk and then he gave his, but it was really nice. And uh, uh, so I've been on his on Strange Familiars a number of times. So, you know, he's, oh, he's yeah, a good that's guy. That's where we first uh, first heard you. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Centralia. I mean, that's an interesting place in and of itself. Not not necessarily paranormal, but I mean, it is a, it is kind of weird. Yeah. So um, Shepton and Centralia are pretty close to to where I live. You know. Uh, Kecksburg and Chestnut Ridge are on the other side, like maybe five hours away from where I am. But uh, yeah. Centralia is really close. And uh, around 1962-63, the founding fathers of Centralia were going to have a festival, and they decided to take all the trash and throw it in the coal mine and let it burn, let it burn out. And what happened was it sparked and it started a fire, and that fire continues to this day. Now, what happened was this fire was raging underneath Centralia. The road, it was Route uh, 61 buckled. There was steam coming out, and it was just crazy. I mean, the road was like a roller coaster. So eventually the state moved in, and with eminent domain, they started to buy up all these properties. They relocated people. Today there's maybe five homes, I believe, that still exist in Centralia plus one church, one Ukrainian church. Um, they had a place called Graffiti Highway where all the kids would come and tag it. And then the state came, and, Pets and Centralia was the sixth most visited tourist place in Pennsylvania because of, because of Graffiti Highway. So anyway, the uh, state decided to uh, cover that up with dirt. So there's you know, a million tons of dirt there. So you can't see the Graffiti Highway. But the interesting thing about Centralia took place, I think it was in the 1800s, and there was a Irish Catholic priest that was beat up by the Molly Maguires, and he was calling out these Mollies for some of the bad stuff they were doing. So he gets beat up, and he got upset, and he put a curse on Centralia. He said, at the end of the day, the only thing left standing will be the St. Ignatius Church. So that was his curse, and... Uh, Lo and behold, you know, that Centralia fire is still raging, you know, since 1963. So they made uh, the movie uh, Silent Hill, 
based on Centralia. So it has its, its infamy, but I would, you know, I would say, yeah, there's something paranormal going on there. I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, something really weird, but uh, uh, I remember driving through Centralia, Centralia countless times, seeing the steam and uh, all that. Yeah. Dean, Dean R. Kuntz wrote a book about that, talking about yeah, It's Centralia. constantly on fire. It is, like yeah. The, the, yeah, it's, it's they're, they're never, well, there's a, like, anthracite coal and it's never gonna i mean it might eventually burn out but it might be a very very long time i mean it's been going on for when was that when 1962 62 when that happened yeah yeah, 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 yeah. so you're talking about yeah and we're know, doing our part years. we're doing our part for global global warming so that's, that's right that's right i mean i mean it, i mean it's, it's an ecological disaster i mean really truly. it really is yeah, yeah it is and um, then there's the, the conspiracy theorists think that there's so much rich coal underneath there that the state or somebody wants to keep it for themselves. Well, that's not going to happen. They're not going to mind that. I mean, you know, the coal mining industry is over with, you know, they have some like open uh, mining, but a uh, strip mining, but uh, you know, they're never going back down there to get that. It's uh, you know, that's like yesterday's, yesterday's news, you know, it's not going to happen. What was the reasoning of covering up the graffiti? Why did they do that? Well, I think because I think they were sort of ignorant. Uh, they weren't visionaries. I personally wrote a letter to Doc, to uh, Representative David Millard, who was in charge of the Pennsylvania Tourism Board. And I said, why don't you open up Centralia, have uh, Jeeps, whatever, you know, charge people to go back there and check it out. I mean, a deserted town, you could ride those roads and, see, you know, see what's left there, which which isn't much. I mean, that would have been great. And uh, yeah, I mean, they know, do that with chernobyl you know they have like know, chernobyl know, yeah, terrorists, yeah, well, you know like, well, well we don't you know in order for anything to happen you have to have somebody who's a visionary somebody who has some kind of motivation you need that and evidently we just don't have that here so you know don't let that word get out <laughs> but i did my part to reach out to uh, dave millard and uh, uh couldn't make it happen so too bad but anyway uh yeah, uh, there used to be tons of college kids there. It was a mecca. I mean, they always went there, but now you, you see very few people. So, could it have been maybe because they didn't want people going there because the because aren't the fumes toxic? I mean, isn't that like maybe well, that's, people that's, still live there? Yeah, yeah, There's people like, still yeah. yeah people still live there. Yeah, and the, and the fumes are which toxic. blows yeah. my mind. Yeah, yeah. Well. It's, you know, the anti-authoritarian thing, and I'm going to do what I want to do. And uh, you know, yeah. it's just like, you know, if you smoke, you're going to die. Well, you got to die of something. So, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, it, it, and on the obverse side, you know, like, you know, they told people not to leave Three Mile Island whenever that happened. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy there. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that was so, so the Pennsylvania has a, a weird paranormal history. And, you know, one thing I want to do, you know, the hex, hex signs and Lancaster has been well documented, the white witches, all that stuff, you know, but not the rest of the state. So I thought with coal region, who do I wanted to go and do that and give the coal region in northeastern Pennsylvania and western Pennsylvania its due. So, um, you know, so that was the purpose of the book. And, you uh, you know, chapters on Bigfoot and UFO, uh, UFOs, uh, Kecksburg, uh, uh, White Witches. Uh, I have a chapter on Dr. 
Frederick Santee, who was a high priest for the Coven of the Kata, and he was, it was a Wicca craft, and, uh, you know, I've had numerous practitioners reach out to me and thank me for writing that chapter. They said that I was respectful of the craft, which uh, I was really, you know, really honored to hear that, so... Yeah, and you got to interview him several times. Yeah. I think you said, and um, you know, I mean, I, I this is someone also that I, I mean, I think I, that I'd heard of the Coven of the Kata, but I mean, he, I mean, he was, I mean, he well, was like a child prodigy. Yeah, yeah, great. I think he was a young graduate like, from Harvard when he was fourteen. Yeah, Sybil Leak initiated the Coven there in Walton. Yeah. It's right down the road for me. But I uh, interviewed him new, numerous times. I was his patient. Um, I was there at his funeral. I was talking to David McCullum. That was his publicist. And uh, we we're just hanging out and just chatting. And he was telling me all these stories. So uh, Santee was brilliant. Um, you know, he would go to New York City and buy these books. And what happened was he had uh, these uh, occult literature. He had one of the best collections of occult literature going. Supposedly, the books he had were in better condition than the books at the University of Chicago Library. And some people knew this. And he had a book house, and they would go and torch parts of his house and then rip off these documents, these books that were worth a lot of money. So mm-hmm. I think Frazier's Golden Bough might have been one of them. But, yeah. um, you know, so... Uh, Interesting stuff. It's it's sad, but he was a kind gentleman, um, you know, um, uh, and, and uh, uh, was able to tape record him. And I remember, I guess it was last year, a friend of mine came over and wanted to hear the tapes. So wait, listen, I played the tape uh, for the first time in decades, to, and it was interesting just to hear his voice again, you know, to be there. I mean, Fred Santee, Dr. Frederick Santee, he was a physician, his dad was a physician, and his grandfather was a physician. And they were kind and altruistic. They many times would treat people either free or maybe for a quarter. I mean, they were physicians and they they were open all night, you know, so they were pretty, pretty amazing people. Five miles down the road for I, from where I live now. So. Do you think that there's something, uh, you know, particular about this region that, that lends to all this weirdness around it? Or is this just uh, the insight you've gained by living there? No, I can't. No, thank you. I mean, I mean, if that's a compliment, I'll take it. But no, I, I just think that there's a lot of weirdness there, like Hynek talked about, you know, high strangeness. There's just a whole lot of levels of high strangeness there in, you know, sort of like in one place. Shepton's a good example of that. I mean, think about that. I mean, uh, out-of-body experience, near-death experience, afterlife experiences, you know, humanoid apparitions, uh, the miracle of Pope John the 23rd, uh, relatives sitting on golden cities. I mean, you know, all of that. I mean, just too much stuff happening, uh, you know, just, just bizarre. So um, I don't know. I mean, one or two things might be a coincidence, but when you start counting them on both hands, I mean, you got to think that there's something going on here. Uh, I don't know what it is. Uh, you know, we, they talk about that in Gettysburg other people that have died, that there's ghosts and hauntings in Gettysburg. They talk about that in New England. Well, you know, uh, Tennessee and Washington State have as many old houses, mansions, oh, you know, yeah. that could be haunted. Oh, so yeah. tell me this thing about New England, you know, uh, you know, having a monopoly on anything paranormal or weird. But, um, you know, I have been able to go on 
collect this. But what's interesting is that when you connect the dots, you see that there's a lot of activity happening here in this in this region. So uh, I'll give you another one. Um, the guy that kicked off the Men in Black thing, uh, Alfred Bender from Duryea. Albert Bender. Yep. Albert mm-hmm. Bender. Duryea, Pennsylvania. Like, I mean, uh, 30 minutes away from where I, where I live. So, you know, the, the Men in Black. So. Yeah. I, uh, that's interesting. That's an interesting, uh, was, uh, an interesting um, coincidence that you mentioned that. I was going to ask you about that, but I've been yeah. actually yeah. Um, writing or, about or, Bender today. Yeah. yeah or, or if another one, if I could just, if I may, um, uh, Carl Allen from New Kensington, Pennsylvania. I mean, he uh-huh. mucked up the Philadelphia experiment big time, you know, uh, sent uh, annotated versions of uh, Dr. Morris Jessup's book to the mm-hmm. Navy Department of whatever and to Morris Jessup and claimed that he had seen things. And, uh, you know, another Pennsylvania boy, <laughs> you know, mucking it up. So that's. You know, and, and another one too, Richard Sharp Shaver, born in Berwick, Pennsylvania, my hometown. He was oh, yeah. investigated by the FBI for conjuring this UFO craze, you know, the UFO craze, the hysteria. So, you know, Richard Sharp. Well, you know, the, 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 the water and stuff. I mean, the Shepton stuff really, um, you, you know, it, it matches with some of the things that Shaver claimed. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, the, like, the, subterranean world and, and these type of things that he said that he saw with the tarot and the darrows and yeah. you know i mean shaver is a real i mean he's he's a real interesting character that i that i really feel in many ways really started the the whole ufo mythology in a yeah, lot yeah. of ways yeah, yeah. I, I think really did yeah and, and, and you know i mean and, and carl i mean carl allen too i mean yeah. and, and, and bender i mean bender yeah. you know he starts the minute black mythology that's yeah. it, it all comes from bender and what he was yeah. doing yeah and then gray barker gray barker and john right. and i think keel john keel yeah so yeah. you know i i view myself a little bit like maybe john keel i mean i i'd like to you know i have a couple other uh paranormal books in mind but um you know, I think I want to go and write my own narrative, my own ideas and beliefs, and just go on that and have my own theories. So, um, you know, I want to be a part of this, and uh, but I want to make sense of it. You know, so that's if I could do that, if I could contribute something of value, then I want to do that. So, what's your thoughts on the Philadelphia experiment? What do you think that really was? Well, we know that there was a technique called degaussing, and during World War II, these uh, uh, Allied uh, ships would be going across the Atlantic and the uh, magnetic signature would trigger these German bombs, these Nazi bombs, and that would explode the ships. So in Canada, they invented this degaussing thing. A degauss is a measure of uh, magnetism, you know, with, with the ship. So they would wrap these ships in coils and then they would uh, electrify them and that would go and negate that magnetic signature. So that was actually happening during World War II. And the Philadelphia experiment took place in 1943. Uh, as I understand it, I believe that they were uh, experimenting with the gossing. I think in, in, in 43, they probably juiced it more than they should have and something happened. Now, what happened? Well, the mythology said that the Eldridge, the destroyer, was teleported from Philadelphia to Norfolk and back. The mythology claims that several people died. And if you saw the motion picture, it was horrific. And I think that's in a lot of people's minds, you know, the two guys 
that are just like um, that have melted into the into the steel uh, bulkhead of the ship. You know, they're just trapped there uh, in, in agonized pain, agonized pain. So, um, you know, so um, the mythology is that something really disastrous happened, that men went men went crazy, and all that. And then there was the usual cover up. So, I think something happened. And yes, there was a cover-up, but we don't know what it was. I think something happened. Maybe people did die. I, I'm not convinced that they were uh, teleported anyplace. The, 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 the rub with this, though, is Fred Tracy. He was a friend of mine. He lived in Derry, New Hampshire. And my cousin Jim was a, a Vietnam medic, and he was living up in Derry and knew Fred. So he put me in touch with Fred. And I went up there to interview him, and Fred claimed that he was on the USS Antietam, an aircraft carrier, that they did similar degaussing experiments with them, and bad things happened to the men. He claimed that Forrestal, Admiral Forrestal, who is uh, uh, connected to MJ-12 and later committed suicide, remember, jumped off of the from his uh, hospital. First Secretary of Defense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, they, um, he, Fred Tracy said that uh, Forrestal had written something about uh, the Philadelphia experiment, and he admitted that it was true, and Fred Tracy heard this thing. So I write about Fred Tracy. I mean, he's my contact, and uh, again, it's just his word, but, um, you know, he was talking about the Philadelphia experiment and his, his experience with that. So, um that's in the book, and uh, like I said, I, you know, um, the uh, Night of the Living Dead, the Blob, and Philadelphia Experiment are all three, I guess, Pennsylvania-centric films that that play a big part in my book because yeah, I think that they deserve to be there. Yeah, Philadelphia Experiment, that the whole thing, and then when you put the whole Montauk stuff in there, <laughs> there you go, yes, Valbelic, it, it's a yeah. it's yeah. a rabbit hole, man. It's it, yeah. It's never-ending entertainment. I know, yeah, yeah. Where'd Al come from, boy? Yeah, you know. yeah. Well, Al, Al watched the movie and and that. No, I mean he basically gave the plot of the movie, but I mean Carl Allen too. I mean it just in all the mystery with Jessup and yeah, and all that. Thing, you know, all of that, all that material is 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 super fascinating if you ever get a chance um there's a podcast called the saucer life aaron gullius he did like a three episode thing about the philadelphia experiment that is in montauk that's super interesting and pretty comprehensive yeah so if you ever get a chance to listen to that i, I highly recommend it saucer life but, okay yeah i think we uh covered most of the book we enjoyed the book and it's a nice uh compilation of these uh different writings all with some kind of tie-in to the coal region yeah. and pennsylvania yeah and also the world beyond i mean it's uh you know uh, yeah so if anybody's interested in the book um you know you certainly can buy it on amazon that's coal region hoodoo paranormal tales from inside the pit or if you'd like an autograph copy free shipping um, here's the pitch. You could send it to www.maximfurek.com. That's M-A-X-I-M-F-U-R-E-K.com. And I'd love to, uh, personally autograph a, a copy for you. So, um, uh, yeah. So thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. It's, it's been great. A great interview. And, thank uh, you. Thank you. You guys Are, know your stuff. I'll say that. 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, is your book about Shepton, is it also available? Your other books available on your site or, and or Amazon? Both on my site and on Amazon. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So, Perfect. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so uh, we were talking a little bit beforehand, uh, but what, what is next for you? You're actually working on another book right now. So. Yeah, it's a flying saucer book. And, uh, you know, I'm just immersing myself in flying saucer literature. I mean, everything I could get my hands on. Uh, the scientists, the contactees, the abductor, abductees, uh, hoaxers, you know, the whole thing. And uh, it's called um, Flying Saucer Esoteric, a comprehensive listing of uh, history's most fantastic UFO events. And I choose to use the word flying saucer and UFO rather than UAP. So, so that's that. Old but school. anyway, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm excited. I think it's going to resonate. And, uh, uh, and what I want to do is I want to introduce to the UFO community a little bit more about planetary exploration and, uh, you know, uh, astrophysicist and, uh, you know, some other things. So I think I have a unique approach. I, I'm hoping that I think it's going to go over and, uh, you know, I'm hoping that Beyond the Fray will pick this one up and publish it. So, yeah, so yeah, that's and, what and I was I, about to ask. And I hope that it's going to be published in 2023. So I'm close to, you know, finalizing okay. it. Yeah. Well, when, when it's ready, um, we will definitely, I think we'll have it back, back, have you back on the show I'd love be, to do yeah, that yeah. okay we'll yeah. flying saucers yeah okay yeah oh, always i mean I, i'm i'm down for any flying saucer talk okay cool. uh all right so the uh i want to thank maxim for for coming on thanks for uh coming on and uh anyone who wants to uh check out our patreon it's available at patreon.com slash conspiranormal also, Strange Realities Conference coming at you November 3rd through the 5th. We're getting pretty close. Um, tickets are available. I will have that linked up to the, um, to the on the show notes for you guys to get tickets. And also, promoting everything Strange Realities. Um, also, Nevaeh's Nightmare. Go check that out on YouTube. We'll be doing something this month. I'm going to talk to Serfiel here pretty soon about what that's going to be. I want to thank everybody for listening and we will be back next week on Conspiranormal. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.